0: Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. So every week, one way or another, we end up referencing our mission statement here at Grace. And that mission statement includes the phrase that that here at Grace, we desire to be a gospel proclaiming, equipping, nurturing, and sending church. I always think pens in case you guys want to Remember that with me. But we're a proclaiming, equipping, nurturing, and sending church. And I want us to think about the third word in that sequence for a moment. We want to be a gospel nurturing church. We want to be nurtured by the gospel. We want to be nurtured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We want to be fed and supplied and cared for and tended by the fact that God saves sinners in Christ. And so uh, what that means then is that here at Grace, practically, formally, we do everything that we can to be about the gospel. So when we preach From the pulpit like we're doing this morning, we want our sermons to be gospel-centered. We want them to be proclaiming Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the life that we can have in him. Uh, We want uh, our children's ministry and student ministry Sunday school classes to be gospel-saturated. If you squeeze those, we want the gospel message to flow out. We want our adult Bible studies, our, our women's ministry events and men's ministry events and Adventure Week and, and on and on it goes. We want all of these things to be centered in the gospel and proclaiming the gospel because we think that that is necessary for life and godliness, for, for us to experience the goodness of God in an ongoing manner. But built into this mission statement, is the hope that at Grace, we wouldn't just do this formally. We wouldn't just do this on Sunday mornings from the platform, but rather, this would be something that all of Grace, every one of us would get on board with. This would be a thing where every one of us embraces this gospel mission to go and make disciples of one another. And so our hope and our expectation is that little by little and eventually in a, in a bigger and more significant ways, we would nurture one another with the gospel. And so this isn't just the job of the elders or whoever's preaching. We're in this together. We're in this together. We're desiring to be a people who make disciples, who make disciples by giving the gospel to each other again and again and again This is what the church is for, what the church does. We make disciples. And so this orients us a little bit this morning to what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. For the next three weeks, we will undertake a mini sermon series that's going to take us right up to the apologetics conference happening at the end of January. And so for the next three weeks, we are going to be considering three different one another statements so in the New Testament, there, is, there are 100 one another statements. And the vast majority of these statements are addressed to, directed to the church. And they instruct the church in how she is to live towards herself. How t- she is to love, care for, nurture one another. The the scriptures instruct us in these things. The scriptures instruct us in how to make disciples and how to make genuine, earnest followers of Jesus who enjoy him all the days of their life and into eternity. And so for the next three weeks, we wanna look at one one another statement a week and in so doing hope, that God would use these three weeks to further fan into flame a disciple making culture here at, Gra- here at Grace. And so this morning, uh, we're going to do just that. Uh, we're going to consider a single verse from the book of Colossians, and it's a verse that says that as those who have been given new life, new identity, and new purpose in Christ, we are to be ministers of the word of Christ to one another. That's what this morning is about. We are ministers of Christ or ministers of the word of Christ to one another. Minister the word of Christ. That's the charge to us this morning. This is how we grace are to love one another and nurture one another with the gospel of Jesus. This is how we are to toil with the energy of the Holy Spirit that we collectively might present one another mature in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to see the word of Christ take center stage. We're going to see how the word of Christ is foundational to our disciple-making efforts as a church. We're gonna see two things about the word of Christ. Pretty simple, but two things. First, we Christians, those who are in Christ, those who have been saved by the redeeming blood of Jesus, we are people of the word of Christ. We are people of the word of Christ. And then second, we Christians, the redeemed, those who have been rescued, by the blood of Christ, we are ministers of the word of Christ. So two things, we're the people of the word of Christ and we're ministers of the word of Christ. And again, I think we see this in Colossians 3.16. So please read along with me as I read this out loud. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual th- songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us this morning as we consider your word. Father, I pray that through the powerful working of your spirit through the word, we would be pierced, transformed more into the image and likeness of jesus that we would adore jesus and we get a better sense for who we are to be in christ so help us open our eyes unstop our ears um, be with us we pray in jesus name amen so again this morning we want to see a couple things and first we want to see that we are people of the word of christ And we see this by starting broadly, seeing the general principle of this passage. We see that in this first phrase. Paul tells Christians, and especially those Christians in the the church here in the book of Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you and let it dwell in you richly. How do we live out our new life, our new purpose, our new identity in Christ? We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We be a people of the word of Christ. How do we love one another and nurture one another with the gospel? We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now this phrase, it answers some important questions in Colossians 3. Uh, It's a beautifully worded phrase, but what does it mean? What does it mean? To begin, we need to clarify what the word of Christ is. Now, this phrase kind of has the the sound of something common, but it's actually a fairly uncommon phrase in the Bible. And because it's an uncommon phrase, it runs the risk of being misinterpreted. The word of Christ is not merely referring to the actual words that Jesus spoke in his humanity as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This phrase is not advocating for some sort of red letter Christianity where we ultimately divide God's word against itself, this passage is not saying that we are to uniquely and specially hang our hats on Jesus' words as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as if those words are more authoritative and more special and more God's word than the words that Paul spoke carried along by the Spirit in the book of Colossians. The prophets spoke in the Old Testament. No, all of this is God's word, God's inerrant, inspired word, And so, we're we're not dividing God's word against itself here. No, rather, the word of Christ is referring to the word about Christ, which includes Jesus' words. In other words, this phrase is talking about the entirety of scripture that is summed up most clearly, most concisely, most powerfully in the gospel word that God saves sinners in Christ. The gospel word that God or that Jesus gives us life at the cost of his death in our place. And so all scripture and especially the gospel is to dwell in us richly. And so this passage is ultimately telling us something about the nature of the relationship that Christians have with the Bible. We are to relate a specifically way with the scriptures. We are to have a sort of relationship where the words of scripture, God's words, where they dwell in us richly. And this is an unique image. The idea of something dwelling in us richly that's to cause us to think in a particular way. But Paul's giving really a home metaphor here. And so I think that this is worth exploring. I wanna say three things about this image that Paul gives us that helps us to understand the nature of the relationship we are to have with the scriptures, the word of Christ. First thing that I think this image tells us is that the word must enter in. The word must enter in. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. A pretty common occurrence for me, uh, I expect that maybe some of you know what this is like, but a a common occurrence for me is I will go to a gathering, maybe a birthday party, and I will have a friend introduce me to one of their friends. And so the way it goes is, is, A friend introduces me and says, hey, this is Bob. And I say, hi, Bob, nice to meet you. And internally, I think, this person's name is Bob. Bob, Bob, Bob. I will remember the name Bob. And I look them in the eyes, and I say, you are Bob. And I shake their hand, I say, good to meet you, Bob. I hope you're doing well, Bob. And then they go to leave, and I say, nice to meet you, Bob. And the second I break eye contact with them, It's as if some sort of magic spell is cast over me. And what happens? I have zero recollection of that person that I just met. And I have a vague memory of their name being Steve. (laughs) Well, this is how many of us, I think, engage the scriptures. We'll spend time with them. We'll read them. We'll sit under the preaching of the word like we're doing today on Sunday morning yet they never actually enter inside us. Again, this image is is supposed to remind us of a house. It's as if the scriptures peer into the windows of our home, but they're strangers, so they keep moving along the street. This passage is very clearly saying that Christians do not have a cursory understanding or relationship with the word. We're not acquaintances or party friends with the Word of Christ. No, we let the Word enter into us. It comes inside. I think all of this is a call to recognize the Word of God contained in the Scriptures as what it is the very words of God. These are God's words spoken to us, revealing himself to us, revealing his plans of redemption to us, telling us the future of how all things will come to a glorious consummation. And so this this passage is telling us that we are to take these words, these promises, these rebukes, these encouragements, these blessings, these instructions, and we're to receive them by faith, with faith. This is a first order of business here. We have to start here. Some of us have to start here for the very first time. Some of us need to to reckon with that gospel word, that that word that God saves sinners, and we need to embrace that, receive that by grace through faith. For some of us, we cannot move anywhere beyond that. That is the first thing that we have to do. But others of us We need to come back to this, and we need to not recognize or not see the scriptures as a stranger, but as one that we welcome inside, that enters in. I think that's part of what we see in this image. Two, not only must the word enter in, the word must make its home in us. The word must make its home in us. Look at the wording of this phrase again let the word dwell in you word dwell in you. This is saying that we are not to let the word uh, uh, be near us, uh, not let the the word come close by, not let the word uh, stop by for a brief visit. No, let the word dwell. Let the word live in us. Let the word make its home in us, let it abide in us, let it take up residence in us, let it tabernacle with us. We may be a sort of people who let the word inside us for a period of time, but it doesn't live there. It stays for a period until we kick it out because we have another important guest coming by. this passage is saying that we, are to give the word of Christ the keys to our very lives. Every single part of them. The word is not to be a mere guest. It's not to be an uncle or a distant relative that stops by over Christmas. No, the word of Christ is to be with us morning and evening, day and night. It's to be the content that fills our heads when we encounter the day-to-day struggles and joys of real life. It is to constantly remind us of the forgiveness found in the gospel when we stray, the hope of the gospel when we despair, the rest of the gospel when we strive. The word is not a house guest who comes and leaves. No, the word is one who comes and takes up residence in us, makes its home in us. And finally, the word of Christ is to become our master organizer. The word of Christ is to become our master organizer. The last part of this image is one I think we probably need to wrestle with the most this morning. The word of Christ is not one who passes by. It's not a mere guest. It's to become a sort of master of the house that puts all of life into order for us. Here's how Spurgeon puts it when he commented on this passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you so as to occupy your whole being. To push the truth of Christ up into a corner of your nature. Have you ever been into a meticulously well-kept and organized home? One of my best friends from college had a childhood home like this and it was just incredible. His mom intentionally organized and kept this home in such a way where every square inch of the house was cared for and dealt with. When you walked in, the the most striking thing was is there were just a massive amount of picture frames on the wall. And every one of the picture frames was matching and integrated with with the the overall uh, uh, kind of, decor of the house. The, the colors were coordinated. The sizes were coordinated. There was a clear theme of the picture frames. And then you moved along and you saw the furniture. And all the furniture, I assume, was from the same place because it all looked the same. It was all the same color. Uh, it, it matched perfectly with the house and what was going on with the house. The rooms all had themes. And the painting on the wall all adorned the rest of the house in this, this really unique and beautiful way. You could go through the house and and legitimately every square inch had a purpose or a thought or an intention behind it. And his mom not only organized it, but she kept this house so that as real life happened, it would basically stay the same. It was the most incredible thing to go to this house. Well, as exhausting as that sounds, and as sure as I am that my home will never be that way, This is the idea behind what this verse is saying, I believe. The word of Christ is to enter into us and is to dwell in us and rule in us in such a way that through it, God orders every single part of our life. The word is is not one that enters in and takes up a, a bedroom in the corner of our house. No, the word enters in and through it, God takes over the house. Organizes the house, causes the house to look like he wants it to look, to function how he wants it to function. It may take a while. Just like decorating and organizing a house would be a project. The word of Christ getting into the house of our hearts and organizing us will take some time still. This is what God does through the word. When it enters in, It takes control, it runs things, and it will do its work over time. And so, this is what we're to do. This is the principle of the passage. We're to let the word of Christ get into us and become that organizing principle of our lives. We're to let it get into every nook, every cranny in our lives. We hold off no corner of our house from it. And, Not only do we allow it to dwell in us, not only do we allow it to organize us, but it dwells in us richly. It does all of this richly. If we let the word of Christ dwell in us, then it will do what the word of Christ does. What does the word of Christ do? It will produce faith in us, like Romans 10 says that it will. It will comfort us. its promises. It will drive sin from our hearts. It will make us wise in our dealings with others and with society in general. It serves us to counsel others in times of need. It enables us to love others inside these walls, outside these walls, easy to love, hard to love people. most chiefly, it puts Jesus before us in all of his beauty and splendor and causes us to adore him in our hearts. It blesses us. What happens when the word gets into us? It blesses us. This is what the word does. God is not speaking through Paul here to, to put more and more burden on us, on us, to merely give us law. He doesn't want to just make it so that we feel guilty if we skip our morning devo- devotions. rather, God wants to invite us into experiencing untold grace upon grace. He wants us to experience his mercy, his compassion, his love, his glory. And he wants us to experience that in greater and greater measure. Well, these things are mediated by the spirit through the word. And so grace, this is the principle that we are to embrace as God's people. As God's church, we have been made into ministers of the gospel. That is our gospel-wrought identity. We're ministers of the gospel, so we're to let the gospel word minister to us and control our lives in every way conceivable for our good. Does the word of Christ, especially his gospel word, dwell in you? Does it dwell in you richly? Or is it a stranger that passes by the front of your house? Is it a house guest that comes for a day or maybe a weekend? Or is it that thing that God uses to take over everything in your life, to instruct you, to organize you, to lead you into grace upon Grace, today is a great day to receive the word of Christ into your heart as it is. How? Huge question here is, is if this is a good thing, if this is what the principle is and what we are to do as Christians and there's blessing upon blessing for us as we do this, then how do we get the word of Christ to dwell on us richly? Well, the reality is this can be answered in so many ways. So many ways can we allow the word to dwell in us richly. We can read our Bibles. We can read and meditate on the scriptures. We can memorize the word of Christ. We can sign up for Bible studies that happen here at Grace or, or beyond Grace's walls. We can sit under uh, the preached word Sunday by Sunday, like we're doing this morning. There are are many things you can do to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. I would like to point out one way that you can do this. You can participate in the take up your sword reading plan that we are undertaking here at Grace over the next year. Randy introduced this a few moments ago but but this year we're asking grace we're not commanding we're not saying that you must do this or or you're not a good christian we're saying it would be wise for you to steward your time by reading the bible with us and this year we're going to take 12 passages 12 foundational passages, 12 gospel delivering passages, 12 passages that help us to understand the character of God, rich passages, and we are going to dive deeply into them so that we're able to mine the, the jewels and the diamonds of these passages and be ministered to in really significant ways. This is a great opportunity to to not allow the word to be a stranger or a house guest, but to invite it in and allow it to dwell in you richly. And I'm confident that if you were to choose to do that with us and take it seriously, there will be untold uh, treasure that will come from that. And so I'd invite you to participate in that with us. 12 passages that we're gonna read over and over and over again. 12 passages that I trust God will work powerfully through one way to allow the word to dwell in you richly. Again, this is what God desires. That the word would dwell in us richly because this is how we are going to experience more and more of his grace and in turn worship him. But it's also so that others would be blessed. And that's what we're gonna see in our second point. So yes, we are people of the word of Christ, but second, we are ministers of the word of Christ. Now I wanna read Colossians 3.16 again, but this time I want us to pay special attention to the latter part of this verse. So verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that's what we've just considered, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, again, we wanna turn our attention to this latter part of the verse, and this is a fascinating verse. It's a fascinating verse because this verse is not uh, three coordinate clauses that are interdependent from each other. Rather, what we see is, is that all of verse 16 is reliant upon itself. It's reliant upon that, that first phrase in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. And what that means is, is that teaching and admonishing, that part starting there, that is not answering the question, why do we let the word of Christ dwell on us richly? Instead, it answers the question, how? How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? This is what Paul is unwilling to let go. He won't let us move past this. How are we to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Again, we said we could do that in many ways, many many general ways, but Colossians 3.16 gives us a specific way. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Addressing everyone, addressing the entire church. This isn't addressed to the elders or to the preachers. Addressed to everyone who bears the name Christian. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. That is incredible. And here's why. Here, we see God's incredible concern that his church is cared for and nurtured. This is God's gracious provision. In this verse, we see God inviting us into the beautiful dance of discipleship where mutual edification takes place. Think about what we're seeing here. We're to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And so we read the Bible, we meditate on the Bible, we memorize the Bible, it gets into us and it forms us. And as a way of getting it more and more into us, we go and we pour ourselves out, telling others about Jesus and his ways. We we proclaim the word of Christ near and far to our brothers and sisters. We teach them, we warn them, we exhort them. And we do that wherever we are. Whatever our station is. And so if you're an elder or you're on our preaching rotation, well, you do it from the stage. You do it from the pulpit. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you do it in Sunday school. If you're a grace group shepherd, you do it in the context of grace group. If you're a friend, you do it amongst your friends. If you're a husband, you do it amongst your family. If you're a wife, you do it amongst your family. Wherever you are. Whether you're sitting on the back pew or you're in the lobby or you're on the patio or if you're at your home, you teach, you warn, you exhort, you teach and admonish one another. And what happens? What happens when we pour ourselves out for the sake of the church being built up? What happens when we labor for the sake of our brothers and our sisters knowing and enjoying Jesus? Well, the obvious thing is, as we steward and we herald the very powerful word of God, they're gonna be built up. They're gonna see Jesus and they're gonna adore Jesus. They're gonna be cared for in very practical ways by the people of God. The very powerful word of God is gonna be wielded and the recipients of God's powerful work will be blessed. But even as that happens, what this passage is saying is even as we pour ourselves out, even as we wield and herald this word of Christ, the word of Christ is going to get a little bit deeper into us. It's going to get a little bit more and more into the fabric of our home we will become a little bit more built up and so we go and we teach and we admonish a little bit more and they're built up and again we're built up and as they're built up they now then go and teach and admonish and others are built up and they're built up and and you see how this just continues and continues before too long this is just what happens within the church and there's a mutually edifying proclamation of the word of Christ. And so Colossians 1 can be fulfilled. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, toiling with all his energy The powerfully works within me that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is how discipleship works within the church. We go and we proclaim God's word so that others would be built up and as we do, we are built up and we keep going, we rinse and repeat. This passage gives the church a sort of job description. It tells the church that she is to be about the work of ministry, Ephesians 4.12, right? She's about to be, she's to be about this work for the sake of the church being built up and for the sake of God's glory filling the earth. And so what do we do? We teach and we admonish for our brothers and sisters good and for our good. But Paul doesn't stop there. In Colossians 3.16, it's as if he narrows his gaze and he gets even more specific in his commandment. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do this by teaching and admonishing. Teach and admonish by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. There's a narrowing effect here. Again, this passage is reliant upon itself. This passage is like a funnel where it starts out very general with the principle, and then we see it narrow, and there's more specificity given. And now there's even more specificity given. Of course, we can do all sorts of things to allow the word to dwell on us richly. And and teaching and admonishing, well, there are lots of ways we can teach and admonish, formal and informal ways. That's all of our jobs. But here, again, we see Paul being very concerned with the specific form of teaching and admonishing. And what is that? That we would sing together with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That is how we are to teach and admonish one another. That's the logic of this passage. What is it saying, though? One of the key ways that we teach the word of Christ that we teach the gospel word to one another and to ourselves, getting it deep into our hearts is by singing it to one another, especially when we gather. When we engage in corporate sung worship, we engage in a massive means of grace. It's a place of teaching God's word to one another and receiving God's teaching from others. And the the implications here are massive. I'm guessing this isn't isn't how many of us think about sung worship. For most of us, we probably think of sung worship as an opportunity to to sort of sing to God and and bring glory to God. Maybe some of us think of it as an opportunity to wrestle with our emotions before God or sing our emotions to God. Some of us, maybe it's just beautiful, Maybe we just like music and we like the way it sounds and so that's enjoyable. Maybe some of us don't enjoy it at all and so we, we sit silently in, in, uh, in protest. Maybe others of us would wish that it would change radically and we, if we were king for a day, it would be totally different. Well, this passage is telling us that our time of corporate sung worship is not merely about singing our emotions to God. I think it is that, Absolutely. And our time of corporate sung worship is not merely singing in such a way where we bring glory to God. It is absolutely that. But it is also about singing the truths of scripture, the content of scripture, the gospel word, and in so doing, building up those people who are around us, fortifying those truths of scripture in them and in us. When we sing, we sing to God and we sing to one another. Again, what happens when we do this? What happens? The church is built up and invited to experience God's grace. This is one of God's ordained means for discipleship to occur in the church. One of the ways that he is going to ensure that we are presented mature in Christ. When we do this, we allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. And as I think about this, I can't help but think of the power of music and how amazing that is. Music is one of those amazing gifts that God has given to mankind that reflects his goodness to this earth. But music is also one of those incredible tools that God utilizes for proclaiming his fame and his gospel. The most striking example of this for me is Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah, is just something that confounds my mind and causes me to worship Jesus. Uh, several, well, uh, it's always been a bucket list item for me to go and see a really well done performance of Handel's Messiah. And so a few years back, the Stransky, Simon Mary Stransky, they heard that and invited Ray Lynn and me along to go see Handel's Messiah uh, done by the LA Philharmonic. And it was amazing. And And it wasn't just amazing because they were great musicians, but because of what Handel's Messiah is. Handel was a down and out composer who composed biblically informed oratorios that nobody liked. Uh, He was in debt. He was about to be thrown in jail. And then he had a stroke. So life was really good for Handel. But in God's providence, Handel was paired up with this man who had written out the lyrics to what would eventually become the Messiah. And the lyrics to the Messiah were nothing but Bible text. Bible text organized in such a way that they told the gospel story in great clarity and detail. If you were to look at Handel's Messiah, you see three parts. The first part is really just telling the story of Christ's first advent. The second part is telling the story of Christ's passion. And the third part is telling the story of the kingdom of God. And so Handel and this guy, they came together and they made Handel's Messiah. And lest we are uh, engaging in revisionist history and we think that people back in those days would really just love this sort of thing, they didn't. They're just like us. People didn't enjoy going to see two and a half hours of nothing but Bible text being sung out loud. And yet, somehow, God worked it so that its second performance ever, King George II came and observed. And then at the end of the second movement of Handel's Messiah, those incredible notes hit of the Hallelujah Chorus. Dun, 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 dun. And they they start singing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is the kingdom of our Lord. And what happens? The King of England, the most powerful man in the world, recognizes the majesty of the one who is being sung about and the beauty of the music and being moved. He stands. The King of England stands for the King of Kings. And the rest is history. Now, hundreds of years later, millions upon millions upon millions of people have listened to Handel's Messiah. And you know what they've listened to? Not just a beautiful piece of music. Over and over and over again, they have listened to the explicit gospel. And people have been moved. And people have believed in Jesus because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's crazy. In Japan, one of the best performances of Handel's Messiah takes place. Japan, a country where less than 3% of the people are Christians, far less than 3% of the people. And millions of people every year will go to see this performance of Handel's Messiah because it's so good. People have no idea who Jesus is, but they will hear the gospel. And every year people trust Jesus because of the powerful proclamation of the gospel through this incredible medium. And People like me, I go and listen. And my faith is bolstered, it's strengthened because I'm hearing these beautiful and true things sung about our Lord. I share all this because it sums up what Jack Frenicevich told me a few years ago. Jack Frenicevich is a former member at Grace, lives in Arizona now. He's an incredibly gifted musician. And a few years back, he said that he writes songs because he has the privilege of sitting around and reading the Bible and theology all day long. And he wishes everybody else could do that too. But he knows that they can't because they have responsibilities. They have work responsibilities, family responsibilities. But he gets to do that. And he wants others to experience the joy and privilege of that like he does. So he writes these songs where he synthesizes the truths of scripture and he puts them in memorable bite-sized chunks that can be sung. And in doing this, he gives people access to the word of God. And so what happens then when we sing Jack's songs or we sing the different psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we might sing on a Sunday morning? We don't have some gifted performers sing at us. No, we, the communion of saints, those who are united together by Christ's blood, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we sing together these beautiful gospel truths, worshiping God and proclaiming his truths to one another teaching and admonishing one another, equipping one another so that we can run the the race of faith with endurance. We engage in discipleship as we put the word of Christ before one another. We remind each other of the gospel and we bless one another. We function as our gospel-wrought identity priest, ministers of the gospel and we live this out. So what do we do? What do we do? We be a people of the word of Christ. Of course, we do this through regular Bible reading, through meditation, through prayer, through listening to sermons. All of those things that come to mind, we do this not to earn God's favor, but we do this because God has rescued us in Christ, given us freedom, and now we do these things so we can experience more and more of his grace. We also make a concerted effort to do this by teaching and admonishing. We take those intentional steps to move beyond how are the Lakers or how is the weather? We begin to to ask people how they're doing and how they are relating to the God of all glory. We, We learn how to say things like, hey, this week I was reading in the Bible and it blessed me. Do you mind if I share that with you? We begin to teach and admonish one another, wherever we are, as best as we can, trusting that God works through the stewarding and heralding of his word. And we do this specifically by singing, singing the word of Christ to God and to one another. We sing with gusto. We sing as if the life and health of the church depend on it. We sing so that we can make disciples and present those disciples maturing in Christ, participating in the mission of the church. We sing as ministry. And so now as we close, I wanna make three brief pleas, pleas with you. First, I want to address you creative folks. If you are a creative person, and especially if you are one of those musically creative folks, I want to urge you to hear this today and to see it as your special task to serve the church by writing gospel-centered music. You can uniquely bless and edify the church with your gifts and skills. Jack Furnisiewicz is a great example of that. Walt Hera is a great example of that. Many of you have stewarded the things given to you by God in such a way that you have blessed us. You filled our minds with wonder and awe at the great God of glory and his gospel. Please consider stewarding your gifts so that we can all benefit. We need you to do this. We need you to ensure that we are led in making disciples. And so, let your creativity go. Fill our heads with wonder. Second, men, and especially dads, I want to urge you, I want to plead with you please sing out. Please sing out. People are watching you. If you're married, your wives are watching you. If you have children, your children are watching you. If you have a girlfriend, your girlfriend is watching you. We are watching you and we need you to lead us. We need you to take the initiative that men are called to take and ensure that discipleship happens here during our sung worship Sunday by Sunday. What you have to recognize here, if Colossians 3.16 is legitimate, and it is, then God is commanding us to sing. He's not suggesting we sing. He's not urging us to sing. He is commanding us to sing. And he gives us no outs based on our personality. He gives us no outs based on how our week is gone and what we're feeling or experience on a day-to-day basis. He says, sing, sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in your hearts. And so men, lead us, bless us, disciple us, and call us to do the work of discipleship here at Grace as well. Finally, I skipped over plenty in this short little verse, but one thing you notice is, If you studied this verse, uh, you would begin to realize that thankfulness is all throughout it. Verse 15, 16, and 17 all command thanksgiving. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us, teaching and admonishing, singing together, all of this is to be done with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We can and we should give thanks. Why? Because God has redeemed us. He has rescued us. He has saved us from the penalty of our sin all at the very great cost of the death of his son in our place. We have reason to be thankful. And even if we aren't thankful, God has forgiven us of our sins so we can rejoice in him. Nevertheless, I I recognize that some people struggle with this. And sometimes for prolonged periods of time, And if that's you, I would encourage you, pray that God would enable you to do these things with thanksgiving in your hearts. Know that we're praying for you. And I'd like to pray for you now. So let's do that. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the word of Christ that you have given to us as your gracious provision, instructing us in who you are and what you have done on our behalf and how we are to live and where this is all going. Lord, I pray now that you would take that word and get it so deep inside of us that we cannot help but live for your renown in all things. Help us to teach and admonish, help us to sing out loud, recognizing what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. Help us, Lord, we pray, we need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, amen.